Section 77 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Mysteries of London, Volume 3, by George W. M. Reynolds. Captain O'Blunderbuss again. Be Jesus! and it is my dear friend mr frank curtis exclaimed the redoubtable officer as he stalked into the room then perceiving the lady he untiled his head in a most graceful manner or in plain terms removed his foraging cap with a certain rounding sweep of his right arm saying your servant ma'am i presume that i have the honour to pay my respects to mrs curtis yes that is mrs curtis captain said frank while the lady gave a somewhat cold inclination of the head and a sweet and elegant wife you've got your dog cried the captain bestowing a friendly poke in the ribs of the newly married gentleman come shake hands mr curtis men like you and me mustn't harbour animosity against each other let the past be past as the saying is and an excellent saying it is too ma'am he added in a tone of bland appeal to the lady, as he nearly wrung her husband's fingers off in the enthusiasm of his anxiety to convince him that this time, at least, he came for no hostile purpose. "'Sit down, Captain,' said Frank, now feeling more at his ease than he had done since the unexpected appearance of the famous duellist. "'Will you take a glass of wine? There's port and sherry on the table.' and there is champagne claret hock and burgundy in the cellar as well as capital whisky be the holy poker exclaimed captain o'blunderbuss and i'll just trouble you for the poteen the true irish poteen ma'am he continued turning once more towards mrs curtis is the most elegant beverage under the sun on my estates on old ireland i allow no water at all and my peasantry is the finest to be seen in the whole country indeed sir observed mrs curtis beginning to grow amused with the strange character who had thus intruded himself upon the momentous discussion which she and her husband were carrying on at the time pachesus ma'am and it's as true as you're sitting there exclaimed the captain in my own country ma'am i'm a justice of the peace and i never allow my peasantry to be interfered with by the gaugers i let them keep as many illicit stills as they like and the consequence is they adore me i should think that to be very likely said frank but here's the whisky and there's hot water now john put the sugar on the table that's right the servant having retired captain o'blunderbuss proceeded to compound his favourite beverage by mixing equal parts of spirit and water and adding thereto three lumps of sugar i always brew the first glass strong ma'am he observed in honour to old ireland your health ma'am but i'm not irish sir responded the lady laughing then i'm sure you ought to be ma'am cried the captain and be jesus if you was you'd be an honour to the country mrs curtis simpered and bowed in acknowledgment of the compliment come old fellow said frank you needn't mind my wife being present she's a woman of the world as my friend the archbishop of paris used to say of his niece 
and so you may as well tell us how you managed to get out of a certain place, and what made you think of honouring us with this visit. Och, be Jesus, I'll answer the last question first, Mr. Curtis, responded the captain. Well then, you must know that I've taken a great affection for you, because, be the powers, I've heard speak of your bravery in a many quarters, and it isn't me that would cherish animosity against a gallant fellow. The captain might have added that, being in want of grog, supper, and lodging, he had racked his brain all day to think of some soft, easy individual amongst his acquaintance, on whom he could quarter himself for a week or so, and having at length remembered to have seen the marriage of Mr. Curtis and Mrs. Goldberry duly announced at the time in the fashionable newspapers, the said announcements having been duly paid for as a matter of course, it had struck him that he might make himself very comfortable in Baker Street for a short period. "'Well, I feel highly flattered by your good opinion of me,' said Frank. "'It's quite true that I've killed a man or two in my time, and winged half a dozen others. But really, those are trifles which one scarcely thinks of any value. At the same time, Captain, we duelists, you know, are devilish cherry of our reputation.' "'And so it's just as well that the world should talk in a respectful way about us, eh?' "'By the holy poker! And you're right, my boy!' exclaimed the captain, mixing the second glass of grog. Then, turning towards Mrs. Curtis, he said, "'I always make my second jorum, mim, a little stronger than the first, for the honour of old England, because that's always my second toast. So here's to old England.' "'And now,' continued Captain O'Blunderbuss, after having taken a long draught of the potent liquor. I'll answer your first question, Mr. Curtis, and sure it's how I got out of limbo that you was asking about. Well, I'll tell you, and be Jesus, you'll say that such a rum start never was seen. The cowardly bastes locked me up in Horsemonger Lane, you know, at the suit of one Spriggins, for three hundred and forty-seven pounds, including costs. For three whole days I was just for all the world like a rampageous lion. There's an infernal iron grating all round the yard where the prisoners have to walk about. And be Jesus, I chafed and foamed inside those bars till the other prisoners got so frightened they sent a petition to the governor to get me locked up in the strong room. So the governor sends for me and says he, Captain O'Blunderbuss, you're a terror to the other people in the debtors' department of the prison, and you'd better be after thinking of making some arrangement with your creditor, or I shall be forced to put you by yourself in the strong room. Be Jesus, says I, and I'll skin any man who shall dare to lay even the tip of a finger on me for such a purpose. Well, says the governor, but if you've ever so little in the shape of ready money to offer your creditor, I'll see him myself, and try what I can do for you. So I pulled out my purse, and behold you, I'd just two pound three shillings and sixpence, to pay three hundred and forty-seven pounds with. Is it three halfpence in the pound you'll be after offering? asks the governor. Just that same, says I, and if ever Mr. Spriggins gets another farthing out of me, then I'll skin myself. So away goes the governor to the creditor, and heaven only knows what blarney he pitches him, but in the course of a day or two, down comes a discharge, on condition that I pay the three halfpence in the pound. Now, says I, that treating an Irish gentleman as he deserves. 
and so I got clean out of that infernal place. Here's your health, mum. And the captain emptied his glass. You managed that business capital, exclaimed Frank Curtis, who began to think that it would be no bad speculation to maintain the martial gentleman altogether in Baker Street to frighten away the creditors, or at all events to employ him to go round to them, in case they should prove inclined to act in a hostile manner towards him. At that moment his eyes met those of his wife, and the glance of intelligence which was exchanged between them showed that the same thought had struck them both, and at the same time. "'Help yourself, Captain,' said Frank. "'That whisky was sent me as a present by the Crown Prince of Denmark, for having been second to his illustrious wife's uncle's stepmother's first cousin's nephew in a duel three years ago.' "'Blood and thunder!' ejaculated Captain O'Blunderbuss. "'What a distant relation! But the poteen is beautiful!' I always mix my third glass stronger than the first two, because in this same third I drink to the ladies, the sweethearts, and God bless them. Mrs. Curtis again acknowledged the compliment with a simper and an inclination of the head, and by the time the captain had disposed of his third glass, the domestic in transcendent livery announced that coffee was served in the drawing-room. Thither the party accordingly proceeded. Captain O'Blunderbuss escorting Mrs. Curtis, with a politeness which would have been perfectly enchanting, had he not smelt so awfully of poteen. And now, in a few minutes, behold, the trio seated so cosily and comfortably at the table in the drawing-room, sipping the nectar of mocha, while a friendly little contest took place between Frank and the captain, to decide who could tell the greatest number of lies in the shortest space of time. Be Jesus, cried O'Blunderbuss, this coffee is an elegant beverage, but saving your presence, ma'am, it don't come up to the coffee which I grew on my own estate in old Ireland. The truth was, I had such a vast extent of bogland that I was at a loss what used to turn it to. So I sent my steward off to Arabia, yes, be the holy poker, direct off to Arabia, to buy up as much coffee as he could get for money. Och, and with a power of coffee berries did he come back in the next West Indiaman, up the Mediterranean. And wasn't it a sowing of them same berries that we had in the bog? You should have seen the land eight months afterwards, with the coffee plants grown up bigger than gooseberry bushes, and making the whole country smell of coffee for eight miles round. I realised seven hundred pounds by that speck the first year, and I have gone on with the culture of coffee ever since. Oh, said Frank, it is astonishing what improvements might be introduced in that way, if one only had the sense to do it. When I was staying in Paris, I was very intimate with the governor of the Bank of France, and he had a beautiful conservatory on the top of the bank. He took me up one day to see it. It was in the middle of winter, and cold as the devil in the open air, but warm as a toast inside the conservatory. Well, there I saw melons as large as a bombshell, growing in flower-pots no bigger than that slop-basin, pineapples hanging over the sides of teacups, and a kind of fruit, the name of which I've forgotten, but I know that it was as large as a horse's head, and of the same shape. So I said to my friend, the governor of the mint, says I, Mr. Curtis stopped, for the radiant footman entered the room, saying, Please, sir, two men wish to speak to you immediately. Two men? 
exclaimed Frank, casting an uneasy glance towards his wife, who, it was evident, shared her husband's very natural apprehensions. "'Yes, sir, but here they are,' added the footman. Then, turning round towards the intruders, he said, "'Why didn't you wait quiet down in the hall till I'd informed Master that you wanted to speak to him?' "'Cause we doesn't do business in that air way, old feller.' responded a voice which was not altogether unknown to either Mr. Curtis or the captain. "'Progs the officer, by God!' vociferated the latter, starting from his seat. "'Yes, it's me and my master, Mr. Macrab, at your service, gentlemen,' said Proggs, pushing his way past the footman, and entering the room with his hat on his head and his stout stick in his hand. "'Please, Mr. Curtis, sir, you're wanted.' And as these words were uttered by the subordinate, the principal himself, namely Mr. Macrab, made his appearance, and a very dirty one it was too, in the doorway, while the footman stood aghast, and Mrs. Curtis went off into hysterics. "'Wanted?' cried Frank, casting an appealing glance towards the captain. "'Who the devil wants me?' "'Whose suit is it at, sir?' asked Proggs, turning towards his superior. Beeswing, wine merchant, debt two hundred pounds, owing by the lady, answered Mr. Macrab. Is it arresting my friend Mr. Curtis, you mean? demanded Captain O'Blunderbuss, advancing towards the officers with tremendous fierceness, now that he found his own personal security unendangered. And why not? growled Macrab, shrouding himself behind his man Proggs. Is it why not you're after asking? shouted Captain O'Blunderbuss. Now, be Jesus, and if you don't both make yourselves as scarce as you was before you was born, it's myself that'll teach you a lesson of politeness in the twinkling of a bedpost. Oh, that's all gammon, muttered Proggs. Mr. Curtis must either pay the money or come along with us. He won't do neither the one nor the t'other, you beast of the earth, exclaimed the captain. I say now, began Macrab, but before he had time to utter another word, the redoubtable captain wrenched the short stick from the hands of Mr. Proggs, and throwing it to a distance, boldly attacked the officers with his long sinewy arms, in such an effectual manner that they disappeared from the drawing-room in as short a space of time as their assailant had represented by that beautiful figure of rhetoric, the twinkling of a bedpost. Mrs. Curtis had deemed it most prudent to go off into a fit. Frank was nailed to the floor by the terror of being captured and dragged off to a debtor's prison. The footman considered it wise to remain a mere spectator of the fight, and thus the captain was unassisted in his gallant onslaught upon the sheriff's officer and his man. The captain, however, had an advantage on his side, namely that when he had once succeeded in driving the enemy back as far as the staircase it was comparatively an easy matter to fling them headlong down a feat which he performed without the least ceremony or hesitation to the infinite alarm of the female servants in the kitchen who came rushing up into the hall from that lower region screaming as heartily as they could under the conviction that the house was tumbling about their ears hold your peace my dears exclaimed Captain O'Blunderbuss, rushing down the stairs after the vanquished enemy, his countenance purple with whisky and excitement, every vein in his forehead 
swollen almost to bursting, and his fists clenched for a renewal of the onslaught. "'We'll make you smart for this, my man,' growled McGrab, as he rose painfully from the hall floor. "'I'm jiggered if we don't do,' added Proggs, picking himself up, as it were, from the last step, and feeling his legs and arms to see if any of his bones were broken. "'Out of the house, ugly beasts at ye thundered the captain. The officers had received sufficient evidence of the redoubtable gentleman's warlike propensities to induce them to beat a rapid retreat, and the moment they had evaporated by the front door, the captain banged it violently after them, securing it with bolts and chain. "'That's the way we serve out the reptiles in old Ireland, my dears,' he exclaimed, turning towards the female servants, who, having at length comprehended the nature of the amusement going on, had ceased to scream, and were enjoying the animated scene as much as if it had been a play. Frank Curtis had heard the front door close violently, and the drawing of the bolts afterwards convinced him that the house was cleared of its invaders. He accordingly descended the stairs, laughing heartily now that the immediate peril had been averted by the prowess of the captain. The resplendent footman was following close behind his master very anxious to solicit his wages and his discharge there and then, and only prevented from acting thus abruptly by the formidable presence of Captain O'Blunderbuss. "'Now, my friends,' exclaimed this gallant gentleman, who was quite in his element under existing circumstances, "'the house is in a complete state of siege. You must look to me as the commander of the garrison.' So let the area and the ground-floor windows be all properly fastened. Take care of the back door, wherever it leads to. And be Jesus, we'll keep the rascals out. I know em well. They'll be trying all manner of dodges to get in. But they'll find themselves as mistaken as the old lady was when she scratched the bedpost and thought she was scratching her head. Then, with wonderful alacrity, Captain O'Blunderbuss hastened to superintend the arrangements and the precautions which he had briefly suggested. He examined the windows in the drawing-room, he descended to the kitchen, went out into the area, poked his nose into the coal-cellar, inspected the yard at the back, issued his orders, saw that they were executed, and then drank off half a tumbler of whisky neat, both as a slight refreshment after the exertions of the evening, and as a token of his satisfaction at the various measures which he had adopted with a view to convert the house into an impregnable fortress. By this time, Mrs. Curtis had made up her mind to recover from her fit. But she was so dreadfully shocked at the exposure which had taken place before the servants that she retired to her bedchamber forthwith. The captain and Frank then sat down to hold, as the former gentleman expressed it, a council of war. And as one bottle of whisky had been emptied, and there was not another in the house, the martial gentleman was kind and condescending enough to put up with gin, of which exhilarating fluid he found, to his great satisfaction, there was a large supply in the cellar. "'What the devil would you have me do in this cursed embarrassment?' asked Frank. "'Be Jesus, and I'll just tell you now,' answered the captain. "'Let me see, this is Tuesday. Well, we must maintain the siege until Sunday.' and then you must give the trap's leg bail into another county. Whose furniture is it in the house? Why, it's ours, and it isn't, responded Frank. 
Oh, I'm be easy now. I understand you, my boy, cried the captain. It isn't paid for, you mean. But position is nine points of the law, and by the holy poker we'll make it the whole twelve. Just allow me to carry you through this little affair. Next Sunday night, my lad, you must be off into Surrey with the lady and little ones, and leave me to manage here. On Monday, at the top of the morning, I'll have in a broker and sell off every stick, and I'll bring you over the proceeds, like a man of honour as I am. So far so good, said Frank. But how are we to get things to eat between this and Sunday, if no one is to stir out of the place? Is it eating, you mean, when there's three gallons of gin in the house? demanded Captain O'Blunderbuss, with something like indignation in his tone and manner. Well, but the wife and the children can't live upon gin, Captain, observed Frank, even though the servants should have no objection. Not live upon gin, me boy, vociferated Captain O'Blunderbuss, in a state of astonishment as complete and unfeigned as if someone had just shown him his own name in the army list, or presented him with the title deeds of his often vaunted Irish estates. Not live upon gin, Mr. Curtis, he repeated surveying Frank as if this young gentleman were actually taking leave of his senses. "'Show me the discontented mortal, my friend, that says he won't live upon gin, and I'll just—' "'Just what?' asked Frank, somewhat dismayed at this irascibility on the part of his companion. "'I'll skin him by the holy poker!' cried Captain O'Blunderbuss, rapping his clenched fist violently upon the table." There was a long pause, during which the two gentlemen emptied and refilled their glasses. "'By the way, me boy,' suddenly exclaimed the captain, as if an idea had just struck him, "'is that old uncle of yours in town at present?' "'Yes, he came back some days ago, I understand,' replied Frank. "'Do you think he'd plead?' asked the captain. "'For tis supplies to carry on the war in an elegant style for a long time to come that we want.' "'Since now that we're once on a friendly footing together, Curtis, "'I'm not the boy to desert ye in your troubles.' "'He might have added that he would stick to Mr. and Mrs. Curtis "'so long as they had a bottle of spirits to give, "'or a shilling to lend him. "'I really think that it's very likely "'you might be able to draw the old bird,' said Frank. "'And to tell you the truth, I had already entertained the idea. "'Besides, he won't dare refuse you, Captain.' Pachesas, I should take it as an insult if he did, exclaimed the man of war, caressing his moustache. But let us strike the iron while it is hot. Throw up a letter to Sir Christopher in your best style, and I'll be off with it at once. Trust me for getting out of the garrison safe and coming back again in the same way. But mind you keep a sharp watch while I'm gone. Frank promised compliance with this injunction and hastened to pen a letter to his uncle, the captain kindly undertaking to dictate the sense in which it was to be written. The precious document ran as follows. My dear uncle, I hope this will find you blooming as it leaves me, and as you and me have both made ourselves happy by marriage, don't let us have any more animosity between us. In fact, I will show you at once that I mean to forget the past, and treat you as an uncle ought to be treated by his dutiful nephew. Well then, to come to the point, my friend Captain O'Blunderbuss, whom you have the pleasure of knowing, 
and who improves vastly on acquaintance, has kindly lent me five hundred pounds, just to settle a few pressing debts which I had contracted during the time that I was so unfortunate as to be on bad terms with you, and as the captain wants his money again, and I don't like to tell my wife, so soon after marriage, that I owe this sum, you will greatly oblige me by giving the captain a cheque for the amount, or else bank notes at once. He isn't very particular which, I dare say. And I will repay you the moment I get my quarter's allowance, as the beloved and angelic creature whom I shall have so much pleasure in introducing to you and to my dear Aunt Charlotte, has promised me seven hundred pounds every three months to spend as I like and no questions asked. So no more at present, my dear uncle, from your dutiful, attached, obliged and grateful nephew, Francis Curtis. What do you think of that? demanded Frank triumphantly, when he had read the letter aloud for the opinion of his friend. Is it what I think? exclaimed the captain. By the powers, and it's as well as I could have done it myself, if I'd studied it for a week. Thanks to your suggestions, added Frank, and now I'll just seal and direct it while you finish your glass. Captain O'Blunderbuss did drain the contents of his tumbler, as Frank foresaw that he would do for it was one of that gallant gentleman's maxims never to waste good liquor, and being thus fortified with upwards of a pint of whisky and ditto of gin, the effects of which were evident only in the fiery hue of his complexion, but by no means in his gait nor speech, he prepared to set out on his expedition to the dwelling of Sir Christopher Blunt. "'Frank,' said he, putting on his foraging cap and conveying the letter to his pocket, "'Take the poker.' "'The poker?' repeated the young man, with mingled surprise and dismay. "'And what else would you take to dash out the brains of any man who should try to spring in at the door while I go out?' exclaimed O'Blunderbuss. "'That's right, me boy,' he added, as Curtis shouldered the fire implement. "'Not that it's likely for any of them bastes of the earth to be lurking about so soon after the little affair of just now.' but it's as well to be on our guard. Accordingly, Frank Curtis stood behind the front door, poker in hand, as the redoubtable officer issued forth. But the coast was clear so far as the retainers of the sheriff were concerned, and the peace of the garrison remained unmolested. Frank closed, chained, and bolted the door again, and Captain O'Blunderbuss wended his way with an awful swagger down the street frightening by his fierce looks all the small children whom he happened to encounter. End of section 77